to read only two verses from it. We'll be looking at a great deal more of the New Testament in just a few moments, but for right now, I'd like you to see just the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24. And I'll read the concluding paragraph, actually, beginning at the 50th verse. Hear now God's Word. And he led them out until they were over against Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And thus Luke ends his gospel about Jesus Christ. And thus far the reading of God's word. What is mystifying about this is that the disciples rejoiced at the parting of Jesus. I think if you stop and think about that, that has got to cause some wonder on minds. We know the thinking of the disciples. I think we can easily enter into the feeling of the disciples and that they never wanted Jesus to leave them. That wasn't their plan. After all, if you'd been with Jesus about three years and he'd ministered to you and taught you and opened your heart to understand the Old Testament, if you knew him as the Savior of men, you had watched him go through his trials, you saw him heal people, you saw him minister to their souls, you had been with him. Imagine you were John, the beloved disciple who actually put his head on Jesus' bosom. And then Jesus goes away. And the Bible says they rejoiced. They came back and continually rejoiced in this. They glorified God. Why? Why did they become so happy when Jesus ascended on high? That mystery needs to be resolved. And theologically, the New Testament shows us how to resolve it. And I will have accomplished the task that I've set before me, and I think that the Lord wants me to accomplish if I have you leave tonight rejoicing as they did, if you come to see, come to understand what they did about the ascension of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The ascension is not a topic that is often preached on or written about in contemporary theology. I recently did a study of uh, the church's doctrine of the ascension and what theologians have said about it over the years. And I find what I think is an amazing thing. That the church, the Reformed churches, and, and the Lutheran churches, and Anglican churches, and Methodist churches, and their theologians, for years and years, commented extensively on the ascension of Jesus Christ. But if you do a study of dogmatic theology, you will find about the middle of the 19th century, actually closer to about 1830 and on, that there is a steady decrease of emphasis upon the ascension of Jesus Christ. Theologians don't talk about it as much. The church doesn't hear a whole lot of preaching about it. And we come to our own day, and there's a great dearth of preaching on the ascension of Jesus Christ. I cannot make up for all of that in one night, but I'm going to try. We need to understand the ascension. We need to understand why the disciples could be so happy that Jesus was taken away, even though they had pled with him not to leave. Where will we go, Jesus, if you're not here? Jesus had to tell them that if he went away, that he would give them a comforter and an advocate, someone who would be with them, who would take his place in the world. But you know, even as I do, that the coming of the Holy Spirit 
though it is theologically very important, we in our weakness of faith and the way in which we're accustomed to look at things outwardly, we're not as happy about that. We'd like to have Jesus right here. Bob said, somewhat humorously, that maybe you've had a question you've wanted to ask me for a long time and you'll have something of an opportunity tonight. But imagine if Jesus were here. Forget Dr. Bonson, and although I love him, forget Joe Moorcraft, forget all the theologians rolled up into one. Jesus would be here. We could go and finally get things worked out. Our confusion would be taken away. And imagine when we hurt, and we do hurt as Christians, don't we? God puts us through hard times. There have been many times in my life where even though I theologically know better than this, my own flesh cries out, I wish I could see Jesus now. I wish that he could touch me now. We want Jesus with us. The disciples wanted Jesus with them. So why could they rejoice with great joy when they saw him parted from them and taken up into heaven? In the Westminster Confession and Larger Catechism, we have an exposition of the church's faith, the Reformed church's faith, with respect to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The Larger Catechism talks to us about the ministry of the Messiah in two estates, in two phases of his work. And I'm tempted tonight to ask those of you who have studied the Catechism, your children in particular, you often show up, your parents because you know the catechism, right? There's great theology in the catechism. What are the two estates of the Messiah's ministry according to the Westminster theology? Jesus came and he ministered to us as a prophet, a priest, and a king, both in the estate of humiliation and exaltation. This morning, I was preaching in another congregation about the humiliation of Jesus, how crucial that is. Indeed, the whole message of the Old Testament is about a humiliated Savior who enters into glory by losing, the winner who loses in order to win. And so it's very important that we see that. But it's equally important that we see that Jesus, who was humiliated, now ministers to us as the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king in the estate of exaltation. And so Jesus, who was humiliated Savior, is now our Savior in the estate of exaltation. And I want you to hear the larger catechism. It asks this question, how was Christ exalted in his ascension? The reason why that question is being asked is because the catechism tells us that Christ was exalted not just in the ascension, but he was exalted in his resurrection. He's exalted in, ascension, he's exalted in his coming again. And so in all these ways, we can see how the Messiah has entered into that ministry of exaltation. But what about the ascension? What's so important about the ascension? What is it that I think the church is missing today? The church had resources and had an insight years ago that has become very dull, very soft-spoken, maybe whispered, maybe not mentioned at all in the doctrine of the ascension. Well, here's what our catechism teaches us. Christ was exalted in his ascension in that having, after his resurrection, often appeared unto and conversed with his apostles, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he in our nature and as our head 
triumphing over enemies visibly went up into the highest heavens there to receive gifts for men to raise up our affections thither and to prepare a place for us where himself is and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. And the next question, ask immediately because this thought follows logically. It follows naturally. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces and maketh intercession for them. That's what we need to understand tonight. If we had studied our catechisms, we'd be really up on tonight's sermon. But I'd like to expound on this, talking to you a bit about the theology of the New Testament with respect to the ascension of Jesus Christ. The church has not always subordinated this doctrine. The church has not always ignored this doctrine. Believers in the church today know very little about it. And I would know that, even if I what theologians have been saying over the years. You know how I'd know that? I'd know that because actions speak louder than words. And though I can read the words of the theologians and what is published, and de-emphasis on the ascension of Jesus Christ, it becomes all the more evident when we look at the church, its outlook, and its ministry today. There is no comprehension, or very little anyway, very little comprehension of the theological significance of Christ's ascension. In the Bible, the resurrection and the ascension go hand in hand. In fact, the death, resurrection, and ascension sequence in the Bible run together. It's very important that the church emphasize the death of Jesus. I trust this congregation doesn't need me to tell you that. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no Christianity. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory in anything but what? The cross of Christ, by which I'm crucified to the world. The cross of Christ, everything. If we ever have a theology of glory, if we ever have a theology of power that forgets the humiliation of our Savior who died as a substitute for sinners, we've departed from the faith. For all of our advocacy of Christianity and wanting to see it, you know, go round the world and bring revival to the, uh, to the nations, the fact is without the cross of Christ, there is no Christianity. We must preach the death of Jesus Christ. And obviously we must, death, we must preach the resurrection following that death as well. God did not leave his Holy One to see corruption. The vindication of Jesus and his claim to be the Messiah, the vindication of his innocence, the acceptance of Jesus by our Heavenly Father, and therefore the acceptance of us, his justification and thus our justification is found right there in the resurrection. And so the one who died in our place also rose powerfully three days later. And so you know this. You know that the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's Orthodox Christianity. You're not preaching the You don't preach those things together. But I want to add tonight that you are not preaching the redemptive work of Jesus if you just think of him as dying and rising from the dead. And we're going to go through the New Testament hurriedly tonight and look at a number of passages. I want you to see how often the New Testament puts these together. They are a 
theological complex, if you will. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus go together. And because the church has, in a sense, ignored or locked off that final step, that Jesus, who died, who rose again, is now ascended on high, sitting at the right hand of God, the church has lost its ethical direction, the church has lost its eschatological hope. Because the church does not understand the ministry of Jesus in its fullness, as the Bible presents it. Jesus is a substitute for sinners. Praise God. I mean, there wouldn't be any reason for me to be alive, frankly, if Jesus hadn't died for my sins. I thank him for that. I wouldn't ever want to forget that. Praise God that he had all power, not only, but he had everlasting life as well. And death couldn't hold him. But the Jesus that we preach who died and rose again is also the Jesus who ascended on high and about whose ascension the disciples were very excited. I hope you can feel that excitement tonight. Jesus did not ascend on high, to put it very bluntly, because he failed in his ministry of bringing the kingdom of God and he had to go to the sidelines to be called back in later to finally get the work done. Let me say that again. I'm going to say it because the church has for years been taught the very opposite of what I just said, and I don't want you to believe this. It is heretical. I don't mean by that that the people who have said it are not Christians, but they certainly are stunted Christians, and they're not telling the truth to God's people. The church has been misled by ye for years by people who say that Jesus came and offered the kingdom of God, and he is rebuffed by the Jews. They did not want the kingdom of God as he offered it and thus if you will plan B for God and thus the cross and then we have this parentheses period now that we call the church and aren't we all glad for the parentheses that now the Gentiles can come in and be saved but the day is coming when Jesus will restore that Davidic Jewish kingdom will come back and will finally establish the kingdom that was offered in grace and rejected. And now Jesus will come back and say, well, forget the gracious offer. Now I'm going to install it with power. I'm going to come back with the tanks and the bazookas, and we're going to set up the kingdom of God and do it right. And if the church understood the ascension, it would never teach something as preposterous as that. Jesus did not ascend because he's been called out of the battle, you know, to wait for things to finally cool down maybe, and now he's going to come back at some future date and finally get the kingdom established. He was not ascended because he postponed his kingdom. But the very opposite. You have to understand that Jesus was ascended according to the teaching of the Bible to enter into the reign that he had been promised by his heavenly Father. Jesus didn't put off the kingdom. He entered into the reign of the kingdom when he ascended on high. He did not leave planet Earth defeated. You know, I, you know what it's like here in Atlanta to have a football team that has to pull the quarterback out and send somebody in for a while. Is that right? Well, we do out in California. The Rams cannot get this quarterback problem taken care of. Other teams have the same problem. But you know what I'm talking about? How sometimes the first-string quarterback's got to be put on the sidelines for a while. Then you put him in at the end of the game and finally get it, you know, done right. And I think that's a despicable image for the ministry of Jesus Christ, but that is precisely the image that God's people have been taught throughout the 20th century about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, our quarterback, has been pulled out of the game. He's sitting on the sidelines now and he's just waiting to get back in and finally get the kingdom established. 
It ain't so. Don't believe that. This is not a timeout for the quarterback on the sideline. This is not the postponing of the kingdom. The ascension of Jesus Christ is nothing less than his enthronement. And you know, if we read the New Testament, we would know that so clearly. I have a number of passages we want to go through. I won't tell you how many. It will scare you. So I may have to cut a few of them out as we're going along. But do follow along with me. I just want to trace through the New Testament to show you how often the ascension is mentioned, how often it's tied to the death-resurrection complex, and how often the whole point is not that Jesus left defeated, but rather left to enter into his victory. We looked at Luke 24, verses 50 and 51. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. You know that. And so let's look at the book of Acts, the very beginning of it, chapter 1. Notice the way Luke, the former treatise I made, O Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was received up, after that he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit unto the apostles whom he had chosen. What's significant here, I I can't dwell on it at length, but you need to see, Luke sees a significant break, you see, in the account of the redemptive ministry of Jesus. And where does he break it? At the ascension. He says the former treatise was all about what Jesus was ministering, what he was doing and teaching, until a particular point, until the day he was taken up. And now he's going to give us what has come to be called the Acts of the Apostles. Now he shows us the history of the church. And it's crucial for Luke's theology that the history of the church is categorized under the exaltation and the ministry of Jesus ascended on high. That's the break point for his thinking. Yeah, I know a lot of people think, well, it's just a matter of, you know, the nice place to stop historical account. Okay, so you have Jesus ministering on earth, he got that all done, went to heaven, and now Luke turns and he says, and now about the church. But that ain't so. Luke sees the ministry of Jesus continuing now. There was the earthly ministry of Jesus, now Jesus is ministering from heaven. And the history of the church is categorized under that rubric, the exalted ministry of Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye looking into heaven? This Jesus who was received up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye beheld him going into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem and the ministry of the church begins. Jump to chapter 2, verse 32. And now on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And notice what he declares. This Jesus did God raise up, whereof we are all witnesses. And what's the next thing that Peter says? Jesus was raised from the dead. Now let's, let's have a lesson about miracles and how wonderful that is. No, the next thing, because it has to be put in here, it's part of the theological complex, as I said, being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which you see and hear. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, 
Now, of all the things Peter could quote from David, notice what he picked. It's not David who ascended into heaven. Why does Peter bother to say that? Well, because David had said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly, God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom ye crucified. Yes, he was crucified, raised from the dead, and as David said, ascended to the right hand of God. Why? Because from that position of power and majesty and authority, Jesus will see every enemy brought under his feet. They will become his footstool. This is the proclamation of Peter. The first day you see that we hear this, the ascension is crucial. In fact, that's the climax of the sermon. It isn't just that Jesus died in our place. Praise God that he did. It isn't just that he rose from the dead. Praise God that he did. But he rose from the dead and ascended on high from that position, expecting all his enemies now to be made the footstool of his feet. And with that, you see, the history of the church begins. That's the outlook of the early church. Every enemy now to be made subject to Jesus. He didn't leave here a defeated enemy. He didn't leave here because of his enemies as a defeated quarterback. He left here as a reigning prince and king, the Lord over all creation, heaven and earth as well. Luke 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, hanging him on a tree. Him did God exalt with his right hand to be a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and remission of sins. I want you to see, again, the crucifixion, the resurrection, but immediately what's put in there? The exaltation of Jesus. Humiliation leads to exaltation in New Testament theology. Well, so much for what Luke has to tell us. Let's look at the theology of Paul for a few moments here as well. Ephesians, the first chapter, at the 19th verse. Ephesians 1.19. Paul says that we are to understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to that working of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Jesus when he raised him from the dead, period. Not in my Bible, not in your Bibles. When Paul thinks of the resurrection, he goes immediately on to what? And made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the sake of the church. You see the significance of the ascension for Paul? Is that Jesus did not leave defeated. Jesus left to enter into his reign. And now all things in principle... All things are under his feet. And that great power by which he was raised from the dead and ascended on high works in us, in the church. We need to remember that in our down days, don't we? We need to remember that when we look out at the world and say, things don't look so good. The church doesn't seem so strong. I think we have a day in which if depression were appropriate, we'd be depressed Christians. But you see, there are days when depression is fully appropriate because 
everything in the history of the church now is taking place under the ascended victorious ministry of Jesus Christ. And that power by which he was raised from the dead and ascended on high is the power by which the gospel is going forth and the church is growing and the kingdom of God is being established. Doesn't it seem to you that the church needs to hear more of this, not less? We don't need to de-emphasize the ascension. We need to get back to it. This is New Testament theology, pure and simple. Ephesians 2, verses 5 to 7. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And that's good enough, right? We can stop right there. We died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. That's great theology. But there's more. Don't you see that? Again, there's not even a break in the sentence in the Greek. It flows right into the ascension. We were dead. We've been raised up with him and made to sit with him in the heavenlies in Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. And if you are united to him by faith, you rose from the dead spiritually. But not simply rose from the dead because Jesus, having been raised from the dead, has been exalted to the right hand of God. And how does God see you? Where is your life hidden in Christ now? It's at the right hand of God. Not beaten down, not trodden under. You are victorious in Christ. He's been raised from the dead and ascends on high, and we are with him on his throne. How can you not be excited? Do you understand why the apostles left rejoicing? Because God granted them by his grace to understand and see these things. Jesus is not going away to leave you, you see, without comfort, without an advocate, without direction. Jesus is going away to reign in your behalf and for you, for the sake of the church. And we are seated with him, according to Paul in his theology. Galatians 4, verses 8 to 10. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this he ascended, what is it? but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. What does that mean, that Jesus might fill all things? Well, you know, if you've been listening to the message up to this point, you're able to answer that question. Paul has already told us Jesus ascended on high for the sake of the church that he might rule with power over all creation and bring all his enemies under his feet. For our benefit, for the extension of the kingdom of God, Jesus is extending his dominion everywhere in the world. He's going to fill all things. Right now we see Jesus exalted and praised here in this place in Dunwoody. We praise his name in this place. Praise God, the news around the nation the same on this Lord's day. But the day is coming when Jesus will fill everything. And his name will be exalted and praised. He will be worshipped, adored, and obeyed everywhere, in every way, in every place. That's the message of the ascension. And I want to suggest maybe that's why the church has gotten away from it. Because the church has gotten away from the confidence that the gospel is going to conquer the world. The church has gotten away from the idea that we as Christians are to see the influence of God's redemptive work in all areas of life. We're to come to obey Him in all things so that 
the entire world is going to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' saving work. You get away from that theology, simultaneously, I want to suggest, you get away from the theology of the ascension in the New Testament. Well, we need to hurry along. Philippians, the second chapter, verses 8 to 11. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient, even unto death, yes, the death of the cross. But Paul never leaves Jesus humiliated. Having humbled himself, even to the excruciating and the humiliating death of a crucifixion, the very next word Paul gives us is, therefore, because he was a loser, because he was crucified, rejected and despised of men, because he went through suffering and humiliation, therefore, God has done what? God highly exalted him and gave to him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is going to fill all things. The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He is the Lord, even as he said. And God has granted that to his son because he died in our place, because he was humiliated. But God doesn't leave unhumiliated. He raises him from the dead. Actually, you want to notice an interesting thing? Paul doesn't give us that part of the puzzle here, does he? He moves right from the humiliation to the exaltation at God's right hand. Far from being left out, Paul's going to make sure we understand that, that the final end of the ministry of Jesus is going to be performed, you see, at the right hand of God with victory and power and dominion over all things. Peter understood this as well. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to have us look at the, um, the end of chapter 3, but in order to understand the significance of what Peter is saying, I have to at least tell you that this is a very troubled text for those who have to interpret it. It may be the most difficult text in the New Testament. There are a few others that compete with it, but if you had to do a hermeneutics paper, Chris, and someone wanted to be really tough on you, he'd say, you tell me, what does it mean here when in 1 Peter chapter 3... We're told that um, Christ, uh, in verse 19, by the Spirit went and preached to the spirits in prison that aforetime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein a few, namely eight souls, were saved through water. What is that all about? Jesus went to the spirits in prison and preached to them. Now, 1 Peter is one of my favorite books. I've done some extensive work on 1 Peter. That doesn't mean that everything I say about it is right, but I have you know, a pretty good backlog of information on what people have said, and I've studied this hard and long, and so I have a sermon on this that's in our tape ministry. I can do a little bit of advertising here. If you'd like to know why the doctrine of purgatory is not biblical, then you can get the sermon. But for those of you who don't want to do that, I'll just give you a real quick answer. What this is all about, I think, is not Jesus going and preaching to lost souls in or purgatory. 
that they might be released and go to heaven. But rather, Jesus went and he proclaimed something to the demons in prison. The word here is not euangelizma. It's not that Jesus preached the gospel or good news, but rather ke russo. He made a proclamation. And it was common in that day and age when a victor had uh, finally subdued his foe that the proclamation was made, you have lost the battle, you are now my prisoners. And it was common to chain the, the generals and the leaders of the army of the subdued force together and drag them through the city in chains behind the, the victor to display openly his triumph, that, which is an image that Paul uses in the book of Colossians, by the way, that Jesus openly triumphed over the satanic host. Here in Peter, we're learning in Peter's language the same thing, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the demons in prison his victory. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that through his death, Jesus defeated the one who had the power of death, namely Satan. And so there's God's ironic, paradoxical way through defeat, he brings victory. And Jesus now, the victor, proclaims this. Now again, you can find out more about that by reading on your own, or if you want the sermon, I can help you get at that sort of thing. But in that context, here's the confirmation, I think, of Dr. Bonson's interpretation of that. Notice how Peter ends this paragraph. Verse 21, which also, after a true likeness, does now save you, even baptism, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is on the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Peter mentions the resurrection, and immediately his theology brings in the ascension. And what is the ascension all about? exaltation to the right hand of God so that every force in heaven and on earth, even the dumb of this world, have been made subject to him. This is powerful theology. And I hope by this time, if I haven't worn you out and put you to sleep, you at least understand there's a lot of it in the New Testament. This is not a passing thought here or there. It's over and over and over again. Resurrection leads to ascension, which means power from the right hand of God to make every enemy subject to his feet. Oh, the book of Hebrews has a lot of this theology. Turn with me briefly to Hebrews 1 in the third verse. Who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become by so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The author does not track of what he's talking about here, how Jesus is greater than the angels. He comes back to this then at the end of what we call chapter 1, verse 13. But of which of the angels hath he said at any time? And notice, pregnant with significance. To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet? This Jesus, who made purification for sins, when he had done that, sat down. 
By the way, that's a glorious theology in itself. Even if we forget what Dr. Bonson is going to go on to in just a minute, do take note of that. Because the high priest doesn't sit down until his work is done. And Jesus, when he made purifications for sin, sat down. Nothing more needs to be done. No more sacrifices need to be made. His work is finished. As Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. Nothing more will ever be demanded of God's people. The final, once for all, sacrifice has been made. This high priest, you see, has put an end to any more need for sacrifice. But there's more. Jesus finished the work of redemption and sat down. The Bible tells us where he sat down. Where did he finish his work? At the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's so much greater than the angels. He's exalted above the angels. To which of the angels did God ever say? And then the author gives us three quotations. And the climactic one was, To which of the angels did he ever say, I'll make your enemies the footstool of your feet? Jesus sat down at the right hand on high, expecting now that the promise of the Father will be fulfilled, that every enemy will be subdued under his feet. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Here the author is quoting from the 8th Psalm, and we come in at the end of the quotation, Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. This is an interesting move theologically because the author is telling us a couple of things. First of all, the promise that was made to Adam originally, that he'd have dominion over all creation, is not fulfilled in Adam, but must be fulfilled in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so it's appropriate to quote the eighth of Adam's original dominion as being fulfilled finally in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. Have you heard that language tonight a few times already? We just read it. It's at the end of what we call chapter 1. Oh, it's another one of those cases where I lament the fact that we have these chapter breaks. I know we need them in order to find our place in the Bible. But sometimes the chapter break is very misleading because we have the idea, well, that finishes one thought, now we're moving on to something else. But the author who has just talked about all things being made subject to the feet of this great high priest who has finished his work, now renews it with an allusion to Psalm 8 in chapter 2 about subjection under his... He adds this commentary, for in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And please listen very closely here because this is crucial to our theology. The author says, but now we see not yet all things subjected to him. Jesus has been granted by right dominion over all things. The author of Hebrews says exactly what you've been saying throughout this sermon. He anticipated your small faith. Because you've been hearing Dr. Bonson proclaim this grand and glorious exaltation and Jesus' rule over all things, but you've been looking out the window saying, but it doesn't look that way. I look around in the world, it doesn't seem like Jesus is being honored. I look out in the world, the church doesn't seem all that strong. It doesn't seem all that orthodox. It doesn't seem like things are going well for the kingdom of God on earth. The author of Hebrews says that's right. At this time, we don't see everything yet subjected to him. But what do we behold? Isn't this great? But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. 
The author of Hebrews says, we don't see the work finished on earth. What do we see? We see an exalted Savior. That's why the apostles came back to Jerusalem rejoicing. Not because the history of the church was over. Not because all the work was done and the nations had been subdued to Jesus. But they came back with a vision of the exalted Christ. The author of Hebrews says that's a privilege for all of us who know our New Testament theology. We understand, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And because he is crowned, you can be sure he will finish this work. The author of Hebrews stresses the fact that he's going to finish this work. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You've already heard that, right? You understand that. He finished his priestly work, and when he sat down, he sat down to reign at the right hand of God. And what is Jesus expecting to take place in history now? I've often thought that if I were granted the privilege to go into a theological seminary that doesn't understand these things, and sends people out into the mystery not really understanding the kingdom of God and the optimism that is legitimate based on the New Testament I think what I would ask them is just one question don't you think in our eschatology we should expect what Jesus expects very simple forget the charts forget Daniel the ninth chapter forget all the highfalutin theology you can bring in here and all the complications I just have one simple question what does Jesus expect to happen in history and if Jesus is expecting it to happen, that's what I'm going to expect to happen. And you know what? Hebrews answers the question. What is Jesus expecting? He sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting all his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. That's what Jesus is looking forward to. i got a word for you. He's not going to be frustrated in it. He's not going to be defeated in that expectation. In fact... His heavenly Father promised that if he would do the work of redemption, he would give him the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. Jehovah says, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. The uttermost parts of the earth are going to be his kingdom. Jesus only needs to ask, and he hasn't forgotten to ask. He intercedes for the saints day and night. He prays for our benefit, that he would fill all things, and every knee would bow, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. You know what he expects? That every enemy is going to be brought under his feet. He will subdue the entire earth. His kingdom would grow to fill all things. And if that's what he expects, naturally that's what we should expect as well. Well, there's a great deal in the New Testament about the ascension of Jesus Christ. It makes a great deal of difference if you understand it, if you don't understand it. I hope tonight some understanding has been given to you. What do you understand now? You understand, first of all, that Jesus didn't leave because his kingdom failed in its first offer. He didn't leave because God had to turn to plan B and say, well, let's try something else for a while. We'll bring the quarterback in at the end of the game, see if we can win it finally. Jesus left not defeated. He left victorious to enter into his and thus Christ is presented in the New Testament presently, presently, as the universal king over all the earth. We are not waiting for the day in which he will become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is now just that, sitting at the right hand of God expecting every enemy to be made the footstool of his feet. 
Now you may be sitting there thinking, Dr. Bonson, that's just good old reconstructionist theology. And you're wrong. Well, I mean, you're right. It is reconstructionist theology, but it's not reconstructionist theology. There was a day, my friends, when the church understood these things. This is just reformed theology. I'd like to prove that to you before we leave tonight. I hope I haven't worn you out. We've looked at a lot of passages in the New Testament. I'd like to direct your attention in a different way now. I'd like you to look at some of the hymns the church has been singing through the years. And I think you'll be amazed to see what action there is between the piety and worship of God's people from the days of the Reformation on this very point. Crown him with many crowns, one of the best-known hymns in the Christian church, Matthew Bridges, 1851. Crown him with many crowns. Why many? Because all power and dominion is his. There is no sovereignty. There is no authority that does not stem from Jesus Christ now. Every crown is his to wear. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways. From pole to pole that wars may cease, absorbed in prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end. And round his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Crown him the Lord of years and tate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Boy, I'll tell you, if you ever get into an argument with another evangelical believer about what I've been preaching to you tonight, just say, you know, you've been preaching that theology, I mean, you've been singing that theology for years. Have you paid attention to what you were singing? Gottfried Sacer, 1661. Lo, God to heaven ascendeth, throughout its regions vast, with shouts triumphant blendeth the trumpet's thrilling blast. Sing praise to Christ the Lord. Sing praise with exultation. King of each heathen nation, the God of hosts adored. Thomas Kelly, 1809. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Crown the Savior. Angels crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings in the seat of power and throne him while the vault of heaven sings. Crown him. Crown him. Crown the Savior. King of kings. Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd about him, own his title, praise his name. Crown him, crown him, spread abroad the victor's fame. Hark those bursts of acclamation, hark those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy! the sight affords. Crown him, crown him, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, we've been singing the right thing for years. We just haven't been living it. We haven't been believing it. 
We haven't acted in faith about the full redemptive ministry of Jesus who died on a cross in my place, who rose from the dead that I might be just, and now sits at the right hand of God where I am hidden in Christ in Him at His throne the right hand of the majesty on high, where he will now bring all opposition into submission. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Crown him, ye martyrs of your God, who from his altar call, extol the, gem of, uh, the stem of Jesse's rod and crown him Lord of all. Ye seed of Israel's chosen race, ye ransomed of the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Sinners whose love can ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall, go spread your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred and every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. He will not become Lord in the future, not become the King of Kings in the future. He will not, you see, be exalted just in the future. He is exalted now. And all creation, and especially the redeemed, must offer up their praise and exaltation to the one who is Lord over all. Now this is the theology, not of the Reconstructionist movement. This is the theology of the Reformed Church. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is to be obeyed in all walks of life. That Jesus is to be obeyed everywhere in this world. Now in the 19th century, Reformed theologians understood that. They were not ashamed of it. It was not politically incorrect to say those things at one time in the church. William Symington in his book Messiah the Prince, which was published in 1884, wrote these words which are stirring, but they also bring great sadness to me. Well, let's see if you can see why. He said, but it's not to be inferred from this that it depends of man whether civil institutions should be set up in a country at all, that civil society originates wholly in voluntary compact, or that whatever is sanctioned by the public will is necessarily right and consequently obligatory. The most frightful results would follow from admitting such an absolute sovereignty of the people as this. Boy, he had that right. There are too many instances on record of the great body of the people having gone egregiously astray ever to permit us to give our unqualified assent to such a principle. Indeed, listen, indeed, it is manifestly absurd to suppose that the majority of a nation should be free from the moral control of the law and authority of God and the formation of their civil institutions. This were to ascribe to an aggregate body composed of moral subjects who are individually responsible, a proud, irreligious, irresponsible independence of the will of the great moral governor himself. A supposition so monstrous, however much overlooked in practice, everyone must shrink from it in theory. But now we don't shrink from it. Now the Christian church, you see, ridicules the idea that the nations are subject to the law of God. But you see, it followed naturally from Symington's understanding that the Messiah is now the prince, exalted to God's right hand, and all nations owe him obedience. And how does he rule the nations? By his word. And in his word is found his law, even for political relations. 
And so Symington says, Jesus, as king of nations, exacts obedience to his commands. The moral law and all the precepts of Scripture are administered by Christ. Communities, as well as individuals, are under the divine law. And we could go on. Symington's not the only one. There you have it in the 19th century. But let me bring you into the 20th century. One of my heroes, humanly speaking, J. Gresham Machen. Many of his best-known lectures wrote these words. The field of Christianity is the world. Whoa, wait a minute, Dr. Machen. The field of Christianity is the church. I mean, between the stained glass windows, that's where Jesus reigns. Not for Machen, because Machen understood Reformed theology. Machen wasn't afraid of what was politically correct and incorrect in his day, and he paid the price for it. The field of Christianity is the world. The Christian cannot be satisfied so long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but also all of human thought. The Christian, therefore, cannot be indifferent to any branch of earnest endeavor. The kingdom must be advanced not merely extensively, all nations, but also intensively. The church must seek to conquer not merely every man for Christ, but also the whole land. So that whatever we do as the people of Christ, in music, in the arts, in industry, in economics, in education, in politics, whatever we do has been won over by Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and reigns over everything, not just every nation on earth, but over every area of life for us as well. And so Majin continues, we may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. The church has no right to be so absorbed in helping the individual that she forgets the world. You see what I've been preaching to you tonight? It's not Reconstructionist theology. It's just Reformed theology, pure and simple. That understands that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords is exalted to the right hand of God. And there from that majestic position of power and authority rules over all areas of life and over all nations of the world. So that everything that we do in every place in this world must be offered up as a sacrifice of praise and obedience to Jesus Christ. I have one more quotation. I promise I'll be done. This surprises even me. I'm supposed to know about these things. But when I came across this quotation, I was amazed because it comes from Herman Hoeksema. Many of you may not recognize that name, but here's the, uh, the granddaddy of the Protestant Reformed Church, who uh, really knew his theology. But uh, many know that those who are his descendants, theologically speaking, or at least in terms of the institutional church, they have a real hard time 
with Reconstructionist theology and give us kind of a bad name. Say we're not preaching the truth. That we're departing from the Bible and giving you a distortion of it. And so all the more was I amazed when I read these words in Hooksma's book, The Amazing Cross, published in 1943. Hooksma says, There are certain unchangeable, inalienable principles to which the higher powers, the government, even in a republic is subject, which it may not violate, and that cannot even be submitted to the vote of the people or the will of the majority. Principles which any government can only disregard and violate to its own destruction. Higher than the highest powers in this world is the eternal and unchangeable objective law of God. And beyond the reach of the power of the state is the word of God as containers. And then I skip a bit. But I protest that no government can have the authority to make laws contrary to the law of God and insist that by doing so, nevertheless, it destroys the very foundations of society and of the state. The government does not make the truth but is subject to the truth. The state does not create principles of righteousness and justice but it must ask for the will of God. Nor may these eternal and unchangeable principles of righteousness and truth be submitted to the vote of the people, as if the will of the majority could have the right to set aside the law of God, or have authority to determine what shall be regarded as the truth. True liberty consists in harmony with the will of God, never in violation of it. And real political freedom does not exist in that state where matters pertaining to the eternal and immutable principles of truth and justice are submitted to the vote of the people. But where the government itself honors that will of God and protects the rights of its citizens to worship and preach, and to live in every domain of life, according to the word of God. And woe unto that state that violates this truth. Now I'm telling you, people who say that what Dr. Bonson has preached to you tonight is reconstructionist theology are short-sighted. Or maybe they're liars. I'm sorry to use strong language, but one has to begin to wonder. This is not reconstructionist theology. In fact, it's not even reformed theology, if you want to be honest. Because as you've seen in the exposition tonight, it's just the theology of Luke and the theology of Paul and of Peter and of the author of Hebrews. This is just the theology of the church of Jesus Christ. We have been singing it for years and our theologians have been proclaiming it to us. Tonight, I call you back to it. Praise God. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us leave tonight rejoicing because we've been granted a vision, an insight to know the truth and to understand that when you were exalted to the right hand of God, when you ascended on high, you did so to enter into your reign. And from that privileged position of power, you are going to bring every enemy under your feet. Help us to believe this with all of our hearts. That's a secure part of your redemptive work as the Messiah. Give us hope because you do rule. Give us a sense of ethical principle about how we're to live our lives and what we're to exhort other men to do and how we're to call upon all nations to do it as well, to bow the knee to you, to confess that you are the Lord, to obey you in all things. I ask you tonight to give us the vision 
and the rejoicing that you granted to your people so many years ago on the day that you ascended from their presence. For we pray in your blessed name. Amen.